Welcome to another episode of the Love the Problem podcast. This is the show where every week we take you through the journey with people from all walks of life and they share with us why they love solving the problem they have. We apologise for skipping an episode last week whilst we're at Tech Barbecue, but look out for a very special edition in the coming weeks of our event coverage. On this episode of the Love the Problem podcast, we got to sit down with Herman Kudlich and he shares with us the toys that inspired him. From memorable Christmas presents that shaped his life to designing digital experiences within the toy giant Lego for the better part of the last two decades with all of its ups and downs. It was an honour to hear his journey as he shares his story of being a pixel in a world of bricks. Enjoy the conversation. Uh, hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Love the Problem podcast. I'm excited because I'm sitting here with Herman Kurdlik. He's here for, for Memorex. Uh, I just wanted to jump right into to his story and get this going. So, so Herman, can you tell people just a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and to kind of get into the... Yeah, sure. What you're doing. Thanks for having me, by the way. Um, so, I'm actually from Austria. I was um, um, born and raised in Vienna in Austria. One, by the way, one of the most beautiful countries in this world, I think. And um, I think my childhood was pretty normal, so... Um, that sounded quite biased, by the way, Herman, that, that statement, I just want to say. Uh, <laughs> that you, you were born and raised there, yet you find it the most beautiful place in the world. Uh, I, I couldn't see how you made that connection. <laughs> but no, but I think... But, but actually, I'm, I'm not living in that country, like, for the last... How, how much was it, like 25 years, but I, but I still love it. So it was not the reason that I fled from there because I couldn't stand it. So, it's, it's a beautiful so it, it was too beautiful and you're like, I, I, can't, I can't be around this beauty, I need to. I must flee to somewhere lesser in my eyes. Exactly. Um, yeah, so and um, I think I had a pretty normal childhood. I was loved by my parents and grandparents, I think. And um, um, one of the cool things that I remember is that I was like, um, um, I was raised as a free thinker, if you will, so I, I was totally into experimenting. I was allowed a lot of different things and um, just trying things out. I think that was a big part of my childhood. And um, uh, I think also when it comes to to, to problem-based um, problem learning, I think my parents actually um, did not solve my problems. And that was, um, I think it was, that was fantastic because I see them, they did a fantastic job in that because I think when I, when I look back now and now have three kids on my own, how difficult that is. You know, you, you, constantly, <laughs> you constantly jump in to help them far too early without you know, letting them deal with the problem. So I, I think my parents did a fantastic job in that thing. And that's, I, I think that shaped my life about problem solving and trying things out and experimenting. And also not, in general, not being afraid of trying completely different things and new things or you know, immerse yourself in something that's a little bit scary in the beginning, but then trying things out and working your way through. So I think um, that, that goes back to my childhood. I think that was the most, I think, um, memorable things to me that shaped my life, I would say so. And um, so what happened afterwards, I got, um, oh, that was, that was brilliant. At the age of 12, um, I th at Christmas 1982, I got a Commodore VC20, and that shaped my life completely. So specifically, <laughs> Christmas 82, <laughs> the Commodore... It's a um, Commodore VC20 home computer. That was fantastic. And I started programming. My father was a, uh, working at Siemens, computer scientist. And, um, and so, yeah, we spent a lot of time with programming basic and stuff and got into electronics um, and, you know, um, 
what, what at that moment in time? Because of course this is so super early, right? And and computers coming out. And what made you go? I really want to get into computing and finding out how this works. Because I think you know people. A lot of people looked to that even at the time. The technology before that preceded that was the cassette player mm-hmm. on the on the Commodore, right? Mm-hmm. Where you oh, used to play the game. Oh, yeah. So then, like you know, how do you program this cassette mm-hmm. that, that one played music, but you could also play something else on it at the same time? Admittedly, you had to turn over for chapters four to six. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. you know, what made you kind of really jump into that? That I think that that moment in time. I think it was a couple of years before. I think like every child in the 70s or so, we had like Pong, this fantastic computer play that mm-hmm. you put to your TV set. Um, and then um, my father was uh, quite strict in that sense that he had to do to deal a lot with computers um, during his uh, working hours. So he said, I really want to make sure that you are into this. So he gave me this, <laughs> this, this computer science books about, you know, it was fascinating. It was, I, I didn't understand a lot, but it was just fascinating <laughs> about you know, the history of the computer. It was called The Key to the Computer or something. So I think it was written in 1975. So <laughs> <laughs> it really, really a little bit outdated at that time already. So, um, but, um, but it still fascinated me, you know, all the stuff that's in there. And suddenly these home computers became available. And um, my father was a little bit resistant in the beginning and saying, you know, I don't want to have these thing at home as well and stuff. <laughs> so as well as work, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then it happened on Christmas in 82 and I really, really remembered it um, vividly because um, afterwards was the C64 and I think on my 17th birthday I got like a, I think it was an Intel 286, like one of the, one of the PCs. So you really grew up in the golden age of computing, yes. I think you know people talk about it a lot at the time, but it's, it is really this golden age of the t- you know you have to be there and grow through it. I know mm-hmm. the kids nowadays they've grown straight into technology and they didn't grow up with technology. Um, whereas you can also remember the time without technology, yes. right? And yeah, you know, exactly. Whereas we as parents are trying to get our kids out of technology <laughs> yeah, exactly. as much yeah. as possible, as opposed to the other way around. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was very exciting actually. So I, I think I was one of those computer kids that you know. People refer to so, um, but it, it was also like um, it was like an un, unknown past, if you will. A couple of people, you know, there were a couple of magazines, maybe a couple of people posted stuff or so. Mm-hmm. But it's still you have to figure out a lot of things by yourself. And I think this experimentation or trying things out by yourself, breaking things, I think that's that was part of that fun. So, and then I got a 286 um, from my father. I think he um, brought it secondhand from Siemens from his workplace and. <laughs> I still remember I had like oh Jesus, two times seventy megabytes hard drives. It was like it was like the complete freedom. I finally had space. You know, right? <laughs> it, was, it was it was just amazing because I, I could not possibly fill that space with the stuff that was available back then. So <laughs> whatever I produced back in just, the day, yeah, <laughs> uh, it was amazing. It was a really good time. Um, and then there was another incident. Actually, I remember quite well that um, shaped my life. I received a, a book. Um, uh, that was Christmas, and I was 17. I remember it. Um, Steve Christmases Jobs. were really good to you yeah. over the years. Yeah, yeah. And it's big in Austria. We celebrated really big, you know, with all the Christmas markets and stuff. Um, <laughs> Wait, can, yeah. can you just, uh, out of curiosity, and, and as an American, I've definitely never done Christmas in Austria. Can you dive a little bit more into what, what Christmas is like in Austria? Are you being stereotypical here? Are you imagining like log huts with like snow on the top and then like, you know, cinnamon like just spread? <laughs> <It's laughs> <like that. laughs> People farting cinnamon down the street, is that? <laughs> 
So it is like that. It's like when you when you go into the city center in, in, in Vienna, you know there are Christmas markets everywhere. There's like these nice lights. There's um, sometimes, actually in Austria, there's a lot of snow sometimes even in Vienna in the city and stuff. It's it's magical. I love to be there before, before Christmas. I think... Um, Germans try to copy it. Um, you see some <laughs> oh, Christmas markets in Munich, and stuff. but yeah. it's, I, I think the real stuff happens in Vienna. Well, actually, whilst we're here, and maybe we can, you know, Danish, we call this particular thing, which everyone else calls a Danish pastry, a Vienna bread, uh, Vienbull. I mean, it, it, is it connected to Vienna? Is it, can you, can you, uh, you know, this, this, the pastry with outside, it has like, this kind of cream custard fondant. No, that's an Austrian. Like I've never seen this thing before. <laughs> yes. This has nothing to do with us. <laughs> Someone should tell the tourism office. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. No, we don't have it. No. So all these from. Danes searching the streets for this Vienna bread. That so <laughs> no, no one has it. <laughs> I think it's called a different guises in different countries. Like, you know, this very pastry that everyone kind of just sells off as something else, exotically close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. We digress. As you mentioned, you, you got a book on your 17th birthday yeah. and with the man himself. Yeah, exactly. Steve Jobs. And he was, um, it was, I think, one of his first biographies, if I remember right. But it was, it was um, I mean, it was before he founded uh, Next Computers. I think he was still at Apple at that time. So, so first um, time Apple, pre-Next. Yeah. Yeah, Pre-Pixar, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. pre-Fame. Yeah. He, was, he was famous already. Right? And, also in, in Europe, so I think he was a famous guy who wrote that book and it made a deep, deep impression yeah. uh, on me, you know, how, how easy, the, how it easy felt to actually, you know, just, just build a company, you know, yeah. he, he mentioned all these struggles and stuff that he got through, but I mean, the freedom, that's it, and so when, even as a free thinker, when you're, um, when you're, you know, raised in Austria, there is like, it's a, it's a very traditional country, if you will, so that's, Part of it, why I had one to can think. imagine a stereotype quite vividly. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very traditional, and if you are um, in classical music, it's probably the best <laughs> place on earth. If you are in tourism <laughs> and you know into mountains, I think it's also you find good jobs there. But if you if you if you like, like the beach, you're shit out of luck. Is that is that what's happening here? Uh, sorry? If you like the beach, you mm -hmm. just shit out of luck. I mean, is that job for lifeguards are relatively low? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but if you are like into into um, technology, or if you want to like push the boundaries on certain things, doing something new, um, then it's probably not a good place to be. That's why I left basically a couple of years later. But, um, but so, so, you know, I was in that environment and I wanted to, to do certain things. And there was this guy in his book, Silicon Valley, and um, he, could, he could do all of these things, just finding a company, like, and, you know, hiring people and doing stuff and building things or so. So that this was, like, in Austria, it was more like, okay, you have to go. So I founded a company a couple of years later in Austria, and it frustrated me a little bit because um, I think you had to spend a lot of money. You had to go to a lot of different mm -hmm. places, like official places. And then um, most of the businesses that you were in were completely restricted. So you need to have education if you want to be a film producer, if you want to do something mm -hmm. else. So, so everything was kind of shielded off and felt like impossible to do things. So and now, you know, me with my experimentation background, trying things out and then this book and then mm -hmm. everything clicked for me. And that's, um, I think, shaped my life pretty much as well. Yeah. I think it's also amazing to see, I think, you know, also coming from such a traditional background with the traditional industries that have powered someone like Austria, it's been the powerhouse of Europe for many, many a generation. 
and it fascinates me. You've never been to Austria, Alex? Is that I've been. I was at Vienna for for pioneers. I was gonna say. Yeah. I've also been there for pioneers. Yeah. <laughs> so I think pioneers I has a lot to uh, you know to do with drawing in entrepreneurs from around the world as well. I think Tim and the guys behind pioneers do su- such yeah. a great job. Um, pioneers was fun. I, yeah. I had a really good time at pioneers. Pioneers was fun. That's the only time I've, I've ever been. Yeah, but it also got me thinking whilst I was there, and maybe I can explore that whilst I have you here as well. For such a country that is relatively small, that is landlocked, so you don't have access to the the sea trade, Mm -hmm. so that's one part, of course, rail and road, but still, um, such an industrial nation. Uh, Did that stem from, where did that come from, would you say, from your lack of Austrian knowledge and history? But I think there's a big influence, of course, from from the empire. And um, I mean, if you go to 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 Vienna, I mean, the whole city feels like we call it like the the Wasserkopf, the waterhead. It feels like too big for that country. And it's like you have like Schönbrunn Castle, for example, which is like like Versailles in the size and in the in the in, in the representation part. So um, I think all of these there's a big influence, I think, still from the empire. And mm-hmm. Austria was a significant size before the First World mm-hmm. War. And um, I think it was one of these, um, similar like in Germany, one of these very um, conservative ruled countries, I think. You had the um, Herr Hofrat, the Herr Director and stuff, and it's still, yeah. it's still in there. Um, so you should, you should not um, talk to somebody on a first name basis. Oh, that still is there. Uh, even uh, in this, this day and age, I mean, if you don't know there. them, yeah. it's by surname only, and there is yeah. no deviation from that. So stewardess would only call me by my surname. Or so okay. that's, uh, that's still there. It's, um, it's um, quite concerted. And I, and I guess it's from, from the time back then, and I think the First and Second World War um, and the results of it, you know, being... Um, you know, the very conservative era when I talked to my parents or so in the 50s or 60s, the rebuilding of the countries or something. There you had like probably other thoughts than, you know, being like a free thinker or something, just rebuilding that country. So maybe something comes from there as well. I, kn- I know from my grandparents that there was a deep fear or anxiety when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to the war still. So yeah. I, I remember the the grandmother from, from my girlfriend, so when she died and, and the flat had to be cleaned up, there were like tons of sugar in that flat. Just in case. And still kept to that day. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's also relatively new history at the same time. Sorry, Alex. Uh, no, just kind of curious from that, uh, let's say for your parents who, or I guess, uh, I don't know if you remember, but who kind of lived through that period, how are they seeing kind of what's happening now sort of the political uncertainties and, and people who had lived through, let's say, the last, I would call it major period of political uncertainty, which was sort of the, the you know, the, the grand wars. And then now we're starting to see this, in certain ways, some of these things starting to come back. How are they relating to that? And, and how do they feel? I don't know. I'm just really curious as if that's something that, that they're getting, let's say, more worried about or they're... they're, they're so I, don't, I don't think so. I, okay. I, I think in my family, politics were not really big or... You, you know, my parents never put a lot of anxiety onto us, you know, the cruelty in the world outside there or, you know, the big war or something. You know, I had a couple of talks with my grandfather about his role in the war and I was just curious and interested and he shared his stories. But in general, it was like, um, as I said before, um, it was very free where I grew up or something, less, um, you know, less dramatic from the outside and my parents tried also to shield me away from that and just look towards the future and I think that's what they implemented um, into my head, look always forward and be um, 
I'm a hopeless optimist, and it's probably mm -hmm. coming from that. As well. <laughs> so it's, it's always getting better. So yes. that's, mm -hmm. that's what I think. No, it, uh, I, I feel the same way, well, especially in times of my time. I think Alex knows that more than, more than most. But uh, no, going back into it, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see, like, you know, uh, so you, you left Austria. Um, we kind of just done that, that segue into mm -hmm. something else there. But leaving Austria and, and then finding that path, I mean, where did you go to first? What, what was the first destination after you left your, your country of birth? So um, the first destination actually when I left was uh, Munich. So um, I was like until the age of five, my father worked at uh, Siemens in Munich at the headquarters. Um, so we moved there until I was five. And then um, there was always like this affection to Munich. My parents always wanted to move back, but my father had a good job in Siemens Vienna. So it, it never really happened, but we spent like a lot of time over there to go, um, I don't know, shopping or mm -hmm. to spend some time there and stuff. Yeah. So. Um, um, that's why somehow it was also more vibrant, when, when you will. So I had a, a, a small film production company at Munich is, of course, in that sense, um, a lot more open or it, it was a, just a better environment. So Qu Quickly, um, uh, I thought um, you said you started a small film production company. What got you into that? Uh, how was that sort of your initial entrepreneurial endeavor? Let's call it that. So it, I think it was a coincidence or so. So I studied... Um, um, economics at the, um, um, the economics university in Vienna and I started um, I think nowadays it's called computer science um, and what was it called back in the day informatics okay. <laughs> 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 that has no relation <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. yeah. good to clarify um, yeah so um, and, uh, and and I was always like searching for something to do you know it's like Finishing school, not uh, school, had like an idea that I wanted to do something with um, uh, with new technology, um, and then I was like comic books basically, and I said, how can I use technology and comic books? And I was thinking, and I was um, working as a graphic designer in an in an agency just because of my computer skills, not because of my graphic designer skills, because there was the new things. <laughs> Apple, Apple's, Apple came over there into all these um, replacing all these traditional jobs. Um, so, and I was driving to work beside my studies and I was thinking about what can I do and then um, just just seeing how traditional animation production and I, mm -hmm. I loved like um, animation films, um, how, how this is done with cells and painfully coloring on the front and um, you know inking on the front and on the back and you know how the technique that Walt Disney invented and stuff. I said, I have computers here and they're, they're doing like this very traditional form and it's like very painful. So I basically bought a hand scanner, uh, very cheap back then in the days, connected it to, to my computer and fired up, I think it was Coral Draw back then. Oh, yes. Early programs. And yeah, it went fast, it went quick, it was yeah. fun. And I said, maybe that leads me to something. So <laughs> maybe I found something yeah. in here. So um, and that led actually to a small TV production company. So. So it's just per chance. You were literally driving on the way and then having these thoughts and going, what if? And they say, actually, you're really into something, you really liked this particular element when actually there's a problem here. And the problem is that it's too manual and I'm really good at this part, which can process information really, really quickly. Can I put them together? And had other people done this? Did you see other examples of this throughout? No, what I saw actually before in my first movie was actually done by cells. Um, so, um, more like a home production, if you will. But um, what I saw all around the world, like in, in studios, um, they were all doing this traditional thing. And then um, because, you know, the, the partners that I had with this first movie, 
um, they said, okay, we need to go to, to Hungary. You know, it was like, um, I think it was in 1994, um, uh, actually, so quite, quite close after the uh, fall of the Iron Curtain. So there was um, immense capabilities because, you know, in Eastern Europe, the innovation was, was big. Um, but the prices were low, so um, we went to that studio and looked at that and had like, um, I think the first um, promotional demo film produced there and it was expensive still and it was slow and it was, um, it, for me it didn't feel right. Yeah. So then I combined it just with the, with the technology that I had available and I could reach a, a quite decent level of quality and then we went that route. Would, would this, I'm just like processing this as we, as we talk about it, would this essentially be to some extent, like the first CGI, like the early, early stages of CGI, which, you know, at this point is, is a massive thing, to some extent. Are you asking if he missed the boat, or was he early? Is that early, <laughs> early, early, early. I, 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 I'm not going to miss the boat, but, but early. It's Because it sounds like it, you're kind of er, on the early stages of kind of CGI and, and, and computer animation yeah, and, it, and all that kind of stuff. But, but it was weird, because it was like this whole market was in, in, in flux and shifting. So you had on, on one thing, I remember that movie, it was called Fivefold, the Mouse Wanderer, um, mm -hmm. I think. I only know the German title, I think. Uh, depending on which one, uh, the, the one that I remember. American, okay. the, the American, the, but the Wild there's, West? There's, yeah, yeah. Well, the Wild West one is Fivefold no, Goes West. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, but, but the one before that is called, I think, An American Tale? Yes, something American something with, tale. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's called. Was American that with the you know the clever pun and tale, you know, with the fact that I, the mouse I, has I, a tail? I think so as well. Okay. But I think that's the one. Right, the first one is where they they migrate from from Europe to the from, states. Yeah, exactly to the states, and then and the second one. What a poignant west. story at that time as well, with the masses of migrations mm. coming from Europe. Okay, sorry. Yes. <laughs> well done, Disney. Yes. <laughs> you got it right. Yeah. So and like and, um, I think it wasn't Disney. It was. Was it Don Blues Studio? I think I'm it was sorry. an Irish. It was an I think an Irish movie product. Anyway, <laughs> the internet will tell us. <laughs> 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 right. But what I wanted to point it to is that at the end of this um, great movie, there was a scene where was the camera rotation around the um, Statue of Liberty, yes. and they mm. did that in hand drawn, and you could see it. It's actually not the quality of the movie is relatively high, but in the end, it is not. But it it is for hand drawing, like a, yeah. you know, actually a circulating like um, like the Statue of Liberty. So that was, I was amazed, but also shocked at the same time, because you know, well, that you can just do to, it to relate to this day and age, for those listening that, that aren't from that area, it's probably, I would get it to like the matrix camera in, in animation of the day. It's that level of, of wowness. Alex is still kind of blankly going. I'm I would say I, I so, know, right? I'm trying to think because- I, you know, The, the I matrix mean, spin where he goes around and he bends down and it kind of goes all the way around. I mean, that was the same feeling with Fiverr at the end for yeah. me. But it was hand-drawn, so it, it, was, yeah. it was amazing. But, uh, but on the other hand, um, it was like, you know, you had like, when did it come out? Toy Story in 1995? Yeah. And I, I knew a lot about, you know, um, 3D, uh, CGI movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like there was this gap, you know, the whole industry in the TV industry was like lacking behind it. You could see like that disruption probably is going to happen. And then they released this fantastic movie in 95 where everybody said it's impossible. I remember um, John Lasseter coming to Austria. I think it was 86. Quick, quick question for the people who don't know who's John, John Lasseter. Uh, John Lasseter, um, um, co-founder of Pixar, I think. Um, um, who's the other co-founder of Pixar, by the way? <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, John Catmull, I think. Was his uh, name John? Yes. I think he wrote this brilliant book about creativity. There you yeah. go, look at the quizzing. <laughs> we thought we would get him as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was good. I would pick, just actually going into it, just you know, was it Pixar was Toy Story '95. Was that their that was their first big hit? Yeah. What was there before that? Of course, they did, 
do they have? That's what I wanted to tell. Amazing movie, Luxor Junior. Also, mm. I think it was in '86, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And John Lasseter came to Vienna, no, to Linz actually, in Austria, to take the Prix Electronica Prize for you know. Um, I think he collected a lot of prizes around the world, but that made mm. a deep impression on me. And you know, he was like. Um, you know, I was interested in animation in '86 already, and in technology, and in comic books and stuff. And then, like this guy is coming to Austria. Yeah, I didn't drive to Linz, but I was impressed, and I saw the movie, <laughs> and, and this left a deep impression probably on me as well. I'm really, I'm going to take a, a detour on this because because you keep bringing it up, and so I'm kind of now curious. You keep bringing up that you're you're really into comic books and and, and that whole thing. What? Of what we'll do right after this break. <laughs> you want to take this break? <laughs> is it is it break time? It is indeed. Okay, so yeah, we'll, we'll do that after the break. <laughs> And welcome back to the second part of the Love the Problem podcast with Herman from Memorex. Before the break, we talked about his sort of computer-generated animation company um, and how that was a mixture of some of his various passions. Uh, jumping into it now, I, I had a question related to one of his passions, which is, is the comic books. Uh, and I, I'd be really curious, cons considering it seems like you've, you've been passionate about the comic book it's called Space for, it sounds like since the 80s. Um, so quite a long time now. What What is your thoughts on, on the current MUC universe and what they've been doing there over the last year and making this this massive machine? That's a tangent I did not expect. <laughs> no, I, was, I was following the question. I got it. I don't know if you listeners also got that as well, but that threw me. That, uh, <laughs> sorry. There you go. I think it's great. I'm a huge fan of it. I think it's, um, it's fantastic. I was though, a little bit more into the... Other side of are, the comic book. Uh, you're, you're, so you're a DC person, or um, or, or is that no, not what no. you mean? Is that not what you mean I, by that? I love it, I love it now. <laughs> I, movies are great, but I never, I never, uh, I actually never particularly liked this um, this um, comics back then when I was young. I was more like into um, Belgian comic books, like from Frank Wynne, um, Gaston, for example, or uh, can, can and Fantasio, or Asterix and Obelix. I was going to say Asterix and Obelix <laughs> surely is uh, the, the top of that list of <laughs> Austrian comic books. Well, but who, okay, so there's Asterix and Obelix. What, what are the other, I'm, I'm not familiar with any of these comic schools that you're talking about, so what are, like... So Frank Quinn is one of the, one of the in my opinion, one of the greatest um, artists when it comes to... to but what, what kind of stuff is... Like, like if, if people wanted to find his stuff, like it's, what would they look for? It's it's fun stuff. Spiro and Fantasio is like a detect, a detective story, um, or one is a journalist and they stumble into like cases and stuff. There's this very famous animal, it's called the Mazupilami, which is like yellow and it has these black dots on it and <laughs> this enormous long tail, it's quite famous. And then he wrote about, um, oh, he, he drew and wrote actually about um, Gaston, which is a, um, an office helper who is like um, really bad at doing stuff. It's very, very <laughs> funny, actually. So um, everything falls apart when he does things. So, um, so that's actually the stuff that I liked back then. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we think go back into the. So you weren't. I think you were trying to get that hinge on the MCU there, right? And then finding I, that. I thought that's that where this would, would lead. Because <laughs> I guess at the American in me is like comic books. Obviously, we're talking about Marvel, DC. What yeah. else could we be be talking about? In and yeah, he throws out Asterix and Obelix. You're like, damn it! I, I'm I mean, done I, now. We're, we're familiar this with thread that. is done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I am familiar with that. But but for us, comic books are Marvel, DC. Right. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the other one, uh, Archie. That kind of that kind of yeah. stuff is the, is the very American um, space around that. 
I think there's also sometimes the, the translations mm. as it comes across, right? So no, we, before that, say, we jumped into to, you know, your passions and you, you're setting up a business. You're setting up a business now in Austria. Uh, and, and that in journey Munich. of, um, sorry, in Munich, you left in Austria. Munich, yeah. So yeah. This is, uh, I, love, I love them being fact-checked <laughs> real time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Beat that, Donald J. Um, no, it's, it's, so going to the Germany and, and finding your path. What, what then kind of drove you further forward? I mean, like, you know, it's, you're not in film production now. Mm-hmm. Where was that transition? I think another transition happened in, uh, I think it was in um, uh, 98. So my TV production company was um, quite successful and um, I, I moved it from Vienna to, uh, to Munich. But then there, something else was coming up and it was, of course, the spread of the internet and I was online, I think, 94. And then you could see that there is like it's a perfect platform for content. So I had all these um, these TV scripts and I had all these uh, materials there and the um, TV market got increasingly difficult because more and more people um, crowded that space or companies crowded that space. So I said, maybe that's a new outlet. So I tried to transform the television scripts into um, into internet games, basically. And that's, um, I wrote a business plan about this and uh, founded another company in, um, in, in Munich and that um, actually there was quite successful at the beginning. So I got a, a couple of investors on board and they said, okay, so you have all the assets and you have like a bit of experience in that, in that space and there's something new coming up. And obviously um, like a couple of content providers are looking for, for, for content to fill that platform. And so for me, that was a logical next step to just find a new outlet for those, um, those things that I love to do. Um, but yeah, so I built up the company, I founded it with a partner, and then um, I think it, we started in, um, in 99, in autumn 99, and um, opened directly into the internet bubble in 2000. So, and there was- uh, Hit right uh, into <laughs> it at the same time, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I think it was in spring 2000 when our venture capital partner went bust in Germany, and from that mm-hmm. moment on, it was an uphill battle, I have to say. We survived for another couple of years or so, yeah. but it was, it was more difficult than expected, and the growth potential was not there. What I'm kind of curious about that. What was it like to be like essentially trying to develop a dot com co- company at the worst possible time you could imagine? Yeah, it, I think it was amazing in the beginning because everybody was talking about you know you could like make a fortune in the internet. You have a new outlet for the things that you love. Everything is going to be turned around, and it was like really really exciting times the years leading up to that. Um, but um, then going through that and seeing like everything crumbling and collapsing, that was um, that was not so much fun actually. Yeah, we're we're fixing something right now. It's slight technical difficulties in the in the studio. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you know how it all goes. I think hopefully you may hear this, you may not hear this. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> um, so going into that dot com area, I mean, like, so it's it's this kind of energy in the space, energy in the air, where anything could happen. And the thing that everyone thought that couldn't happen happened, where it all went down. I mean, was that such a struggle to see? You know, it's not quite the deep depression, but it really hit hard on the markets at that time. Um, and starting a company now, even in in that time or going through that, was that something tough? I think it was very tough, and I think the the. The best companies that survived were uh, survived were probably in the B two C market or so. So we were totally in the B two B market, very young company, and um, were dependent on venture capital to grow the company. And then, um, 
yeah, the environment was just simply not there. But then you could see that other companies actually used this to their um, to their um, advantage, like Amazon, for example, or so, because they were close to the customers and they could live through that. They were like established companies. So it was a very, very interesting time. So I, w I wouldn't miss this. I, I, I learned a lot, actually, yeah. to survive in that, in that environment and find other venture capital partners. I finally finished parts of that content, sold it to the Telecom Austria, had a quite successful online game there, and it was... In general, it was just just magical to turning television series into into internet games. Um, it just it just the growth potential wasn't there because everybody was holding back, you know, keeping their wallets close to themselves yeah. and don't want to spend money in a market that is quite uh, unknown back then. It was quite unknown. So I, oh, I got a quick question on, on that. Like, I'm just imagining this. Like, how do you turn a television script into an internet game? Like, like what, what, what is, I, I think that that's really curious to me and I'm, I'm a bit of a gamer and I've been involved actually with, with game creation. Um, we probably have a similar backgrounds. So we can talk about that later. Um, but I'm just really curious about that of like, how, how do you actually do that? Like, like how do those things uh, support each other? Uh, can you give more flavor on like the actual process behind that conversion? Sure. So I studied computer science and um, I had this background and this, this urge to go back into programming because I loved it, but I couldn't do it while I was having my, um, my um, television production company. So um, I had this urge and probably in the back of my head, some kind of wish to go back into that. And um, in general, I, I looked at computer games at a quite significant um, size back then already, you know, big teams mm -hmm. and stuff. And I didn't want to go down that route. So I, I thought to myself, okay, what is, what is the games that I like most and what's probably easier to produce without having a big production team. And then adventure games, they come directly point and click yeah. adventure games, fall directly into, into, into your mind because it's basically very story driven. It's not very yeah. complex. It, it solves puzzles. And um, together with the software that became available back then, it was called Flash. Macromedia, Flash. <laughs> um, I think new innovative new technology, <laughs> Flash. I think it was it was version five, so it was al already around a um, bit of time, and um, I think it was based on um, on uh, JavaScript, if I remember correctly. And that was that was fun to program. So I had all these scripts, and I just need to rewrite um, those scripts into some kind of more adventurous stories, and that was actually really fun to do. So. Um, that was actually that part was relatively easy to turn mm. television scripts and um, projects and pilot movies into animated movies on the yep. on the web. I mean, that, uh, so basically, it's, uh, you were doing what Black Mirror has innovated recently, all those years ago. Okay, I don't know Black Mirror. But uh, ah, Black Mirror. You, you didn't see that. Uh, Basically, now Black Mirror gives you the opportunity. So, of course, Black Mirror as a show um, is reflective on societal issues and changes. Um, but one, they did a, f a particular film. It's called Bandersnatch. And where you were able to make the decision along various paths. So, and they went as granular as you could decide which cereal he was going to eat that particular morning. Oh, okay. And according to which cereal, then diverted the path of the journey but I mean like of course it's going back into that that element of interacting between your entertainment at the same time and finding that, that kind of switch over and this path of seeing more and more things like of course the quiz shows nice and easy to replicate I think um, but the guys but is it Endemol that, that came up with uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire I think it was a format Endemol, think, yeah. that came that yeah. just rolled all the way through um, and has gone, permeated every single aspect of your life right mm -hmm. not just being able to watch it you're consuming it you're in it you're engaged right. and I think yeah. that as, as entertainment goes was yeah. where this is kind of the, the nucleus 
kind of scenes to start with. <laughs> um, but that, you know, with that um, in mind, mm -hmm. I mean, like, so you've gone through that, you're trying to raise venture capital in that moment in time. Um, I think that's also for another point, like venture capital in the late 90s. I think that's also a whole different ball game. Was it more valuations, more money being thrown out? Um, of course, before the boom, and then afterwards, people just pulling everything back and just yeah, saying no. Exactly. Yeah, it was exactly like that. And already, like conservative environment or more conservative environment in 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 Munich, Germany, or in Austria than in Silicon Valley or so. But still, it was relatively easy beforehand to get, like at least from my perspective, to get um, venture capital back then. Um, but afterwards, it was totally, totally impossible. Every bank or every mm. investor, every angel investor, they all backed completely out. And it's also no wonder because um, also our product was depending heavily on the B2C mm -hmm. market, right? So our whole business model was then questionable. So an already dried up market from a venture capital perspective, and then you have a business mm -hmm. model that is questionable into an uncertain So you had future. a B2B company that after the beforehand then completely dried up because it was not focusing on the consumers and then having a B2C company then having on the, on the other side and that boom and then the bust kicking you. It, it was a tough ride trying to find the models coming through yeah. to say the least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But flash forward, you've been here now in Denmark for the better part of 10 years, you say? Um, almost 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, longer than 10 years in the meantime. Yeah, I came yeah. in 2009, so in May. So Wait, did you come kind of more or less right around the time the previous venture, let's call it, ended or collapsed or whatever happened there? Uh, so, no, I, I sold the shares to the partner, so that's, um, that was uh, a relatively easy way out. But uh, no, no, I had a stopover in, um, in Amsterdam, actually. I worked for a really progressive internet company there because um, I wanted to you know, get out of my own businesses and, and just, you know, do the traditional getting a salary at the end of the day. Don't think too much about, you know, establishing mm -hmm. so a business. So after two businesses <laughs> where you really, really <laughs> tried <laughs> and you had your heart broken yeah, twice, yes. you went, I can't do this quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to work for someone else. I think my, my heart wasn't broken from the first one, I would, I would say, because um, I, I loved what I, what I was doing. I was just putting all the eggs in the basket of the second one. That's why the first one actually was a little bit on the back burner. And mm -hmm, I, yeah. it wasn't like... You know, after the internet thing happened, I wasn't like, it, it felt wrong to build up like the TV production company again. It was like, it's like they've been there, done that and stuff. So um, I, was, I was ready for doing something new, but maybe also because of lack of ideas and because my girlfriend had to move to The Hague to go studying a uh, design there. Um, <laughs> because, <I> maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> So I followed her there and um, yeah, and then I found this really progressive internet company and the Netherlands, um, I think in general, is a very, um, very progressive country and a lot of things happened there. So that was, that was a fantastic couple of years and I actually worked as a project manager and as a um, programmer as well, where my heart belongs partly as well. So going back into code, was that your first time professionally going back into code since dabbling in, it, in, in school and education and, and that space? No, no, it was already like with uh, building up the internet company in 1999. Okay, yeah. So I did a lot of programming myself in Flash yeah. and um, over the years I did a lot of stuff. Myself. I had to do a lot of stuff myself because it was difficult to get that company off the ground and hire additional people and stuff. So And it was fun for me, so I didn't mind. So I had the businesses during the day and in the evenings and mornings I programmed. So that's <laughs> like... <laughs> And the entrepreneurs nowadays think they have a problem with getting technical talent. <laughs> 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 so, 
So and yeah, and at, at the internet company in um, in the Netherlands, it was quite exciting because we were working on these um, on these um, projects. So those guys had the idea, actually, also going for venture capital, of building something like USB toys. Back then, it was called like UB Funkies, I think, from Mattel. So it's a it's a toy that you connect. Um, onto the computer and then you had this figure that you connected this physical figure in that game um, and they had different capabilities so we wanted to come up with a similar um, um, product and then we created like these little figures where we had um, like the possibility to connect it to um, to the to the computer yeah. I just mm -hmm. loved the project and um, and I was the project manager on that and um, the, the basic idea and it's still fantastic is like you had these sensor balls you know that you can collect and then um, the idea was that you put like a sensor with temperature, a temperature ball actually into your freezer at home and then you bring it back, put it into, into, the, into the figure. It, it, you know, it, it, it recognizes the temperature drop and then suddenly you have freezing powers in that game. It's just like this what physical activity combined Ooh. with digital stuff. So that's, that's what I did basically at Lego the last 10 years, combining digital and physical um, physical play and this is this is just magical that this is possible now I mean this this sounds super interesting to me and, and almost I'm just gonna make this parallel almost some of the the precursors to like modern AR type stuff is this is like the really really er early version of like let's do stuff in the physical space yeah. that then affects what's going on yeah. in the digital world and, yeah. and, and I mean we certainly the technology has improved and so exactly we're better the at that but Technology it, can do that. It could, mm. it could do it back then already, and it's and it's just. It, I think for me, it's 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 fantastic because you have these collector items, you know, this, these balls, and they can do different things. You get the kids away from the computer to be physically active, but still collecting stuff in the real world and then bringing it into that in that world. It has all the components that yep. um, have a potential for being magical. I think. Um, but uh, so I was a project manager. I was not in charge of getting um, getting the capital on board. And um, this company was thirty people. It was very busy actually with um, um, with that you know that traditional clients. It was mm -hmm. an internet uh, production company. So this agency. is uh, just on the side, kind of not full focus, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I I don't know what happened then after that because I was um, um, I was applying for a job at Lego and then I, I got it. So I you know uh, switched jobs when the project was like just. It, it was ready for going for uh, finding venture capital partners and the business plan was ready and stuff. So, yep. um, I, you know, I followed you on the sideline, but uh, I think nothing happened. So. so you picked up your bags, left Amsterdam for the heady heights of Western Jutland. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, congratulations. <laughs> You're now no longer a virgin to Western <laughs> yeah, Jutland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the second time we've talked about it in a row. <laughs> it's, it's, well, this, this episode's going to come out a, a bunch later, yes. but uh, yeah, the, the, the episode that got released this week, we, we got into what was deemed the wild west of, of Denmark, <laughs> Western Jutland, <Yeah. laughs> which, which is fantastic. So how was it going from actually um, the metropolis of Amsterdam, this melting pot of cultures, uh, people, architecture, history, and going into a place that is relatively secluded? Um, one side is the sea, and the other side is is fields and, and not a lot of people in between, um, and very close to Germany. I think that's the, the kind of the only intersection of, you know, the only part uh, where the Danish church does not register for your name and your your birth certificate is the southern part of Germ of Denmark. The southern uh, part of Germany. And the southern part of <laughs> Germany as well. well. And the northern and the central. <laughs> but definitely the southern part of Denmark um, yes. because it's then done by the municipality because of the, the, the state lines and the church lines and everything that blends in between. But I digress again. I love West Jutland, by the way, people. Um, no, 
how was that? How was that going in between the two? As you have uh, described it quite well, so <laughs> it was really, um, um, it, it, it was different, let's call it that way. So I was in the middle of nowhere. There was an air quote there, by the way, people. Air <laughs> quote. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Lego is in basically in the middle of nowhere, right? So it's this small town built and it, um, uh, I think there's Legoland there. So in summertime, there are a lot of more people there because of the park. But um, I remember coming for this interview, I was really excited um, about the job opportunity about Lego. And I was a little bit early coming from the airport and I said, okay, I can like, you know, find a nice coffee house or something and prepare myself for thing. There was no coffee house. There was, <laughs> there was nothing. It's, it's, it really is, it's, it was nothing there. So this is 10 uh, years ago, just. Yeah, it's, it's got a little bit better now. There's, um, there's but more than nothing there now, just disclaimer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's so one coffee house. <laughs> Two. <laughs> so as I remember, right, I wandered through the rain. And then um, I went to this interview and it was like half an hour early and waited in the lobby and stuff. And it was fine because there was like all these fantastic Lego buildings in the mm -hmm. lobby. And so I was um, quite, quite fun. And then, um, yeah, I had this interview. I got the job. And then I had to figure out where I want to live. And then um, I think uh, there was Aarhus, which is a quite um, cool big city in the in the area, but it's like a more longer drive, so one, one and a half hours, depending yeah. on what part you live. Um, so I decided for Weile, which is the next biggest I've thing. I've heard that. It's, it's a Weile's halfway in between the two, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, only, you're still 35 minutes outside of where you need to be, Yeah. but it's a nice commute through, and, and you know, but still, Weile to Amsterdam. Yeah, it, um, it still was a switch. Mm. But, but you know, it, it was not, it was not so difficult for me because when you enter like the Lego campus, you, you're like surrounded by people it's, uh, from all different parts of the world. And it's like, it, it really doesn't matter if you're like working in an office in New York or somewhere or in Billund as, as, as you know, as fun as it sounds. Because it when rains you just there, as much in New York as it does in Billund. So, you know, <laughs> equal. <laughs> so it, it was like, you know, as soon as you enter there, it was like this, this, this flow of international people and stuff. You're surrounded by this thing. I was working on this um, computer game called Lego Universe, 180 people, part of them were you know, working in Colorado, so I was flying yeah. over there a lot and stuff. So it was not, I, I didn't feel violent much. And after all, you know, if you have a, like a busy job and you're really emerging yourself in that, in that activity, then you know, it's nice to be on the like, countryside. Weile is a very beautiful town. It's um, 50,000, 60,000 people. Nothing compared to Amsterdam, but I mean, you have the sea in front of you and it's really nice people living there. So it was great. So it was a, a shift in, in the speed and, and the, the way things were being done at the same time, but yeah. also a new influx of, of things coming through. If you, you know, stop us for any moment in time. You can't, don't say, can't say, won't say, but I mean, it fascinates me because Lego went through this, this period at the beginning of where they were so successful and they were just mass producing Lego bricks and everyone said, well, you've got to get into digital. You've got to go into this. If you don't go into this and you miss the boat, you're going to be really into trouble. And they didn't at the beginning and they came in in my humble opinion, too late. They came in with products and they, they overstretched themselves often on products in the digital space. And, and was that something that, you know, that they've restructured since then? They had to sell the parks to, to, to make money in between. And now, of course, the recent news is they've just bought back not only the parks, they bought back the group that bought the parks from them in the first yes. place. Yes. It's kind of like a, it's okay again now, feeding. But <laughs> yeah. how how was it back in in that time? I mean, was it just this kind of struggle that you had to get a product out there, and it was? 
So in, in, in 2009, when I started, and because of these virtual worlds that I worked in um, in Amsterdam on, um, um, I think I got the job at Lego because they were doing this um, massive multiplayer online game, Lego Universe. Um, the biggest single production that they did um, at, that, at that time, so a significant amount of people. So the commitment was there. Everybody was excited about going to the digital space. And you shouldn't forget um, the, the games from Lego that were produced by TT Games. They were hugely successful. I think the first one came out in 2004, 2005, yeah. if you remember correctly. But they were hugely successful. I think Lego games are still like Lego Star Wars, for example. It's still like one of the most played games or most sold games of all times. And um, so the environment was perfect. And it was it was just like you, you felt this hype because the company made the turnaround from 2003 Oh, yeah, that was the point when they started doing the franchising and started going with movies and saying... But it was earlier. That was like, that yeah. was in the 90s still. But um, so Lego went through very difficult times in 2002, 2003. I think 1 billion Danish crowns lost. And then Jörn V. Knudstorp, you know, the legendary CEO, came on board in 2003, 2004. And he completely turned the company around. And after he, he came on board, we had, um, I think, double-digit growth, unheard everything of. Is in, awesome. in, in the, everything <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now that song's in your head. I'm mm. sorry. <laughs> and then 10 years, double-digit growth. It was a really a fantastic time to, to, to be at Lego. So, um, and um, yeah, and digital actually at that time was like really you could feel that everybody wanted to move in that space and stuff. So um, I think it was good to work in the digital part. Eh? But um, then we uh, we recruited um, a lot, a lot of kids in a very short amount of time. Remember, I think it was six months, two and a half million uh, children, just, mm -hmm. just throwing them onto the platform. And by throwing, I mean like there was a big campaign going on. Of course, you have the Lego brand and um, it was a big, big undertaking. And because the quality of Lego is always very high, um, it was not like a prototype or anything. So it was it was really properly done, but it was wow. a massive undertaking. So um, no lean agile development. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with this. No, 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 this is no, no, we had scrum. Build running. everything first mm. and then. Uh, no, not, not entirely. No, no. So we had like an agile approach um, within yeah. those teams. We had like scrum running and yeah. we, we turned the company onto scrum. Um, Fantastic. But, uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was good, but um, nothing was let out to the, to, the, to the community, to the players, until it was like polished enough to, to, to get it out. So was that, do you think, uh, one of the, the issues going into it of why it didn't come through as, as well? as it should have or I, I think um, I think it didn't it didn't reach the successes that everybody hoped for and I think Lego just lost the patience it's a you, you must understand that it's a company that has an 80 year old history the product the core product is 60 year old and now you're entering this new market you put a lot of money into that into that right. into that new product and um, then you could see that like competitors and the whole market heats up and then in my opinion it was just um, it didn't manifest in itself fast enough you know with uh, in terms of subscription revenue it, oh, yeah. it monetized uh, didn't monetize fast enough so it was hugely successful with the fans but i think the monetization was um uh, was not coming in fast enough and um you know having an 80 year old company it's it doesn't and having hugely successful with a core focus on, on petroleum based products exactly yeah. and and then <laughs> Um, soon not anymore yeah. uh, but, um, that was then not now disclaimer <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think it's from that point of view when um, Lego Universe was closed down it was 
it was relatively understandable because you had this hugely yeah. successful and Lego Universe with its 180 people it was like a freight train going for a lot of years through that company and I think a lot of people got um, got scared that it takes too much attention from the core uh, from the core business and I think you need to be really patient to to to, to wait until like from the monetization Minecraft pays didn't off. come too much further after was it at the same time? Uh, they, they, Minecraft definitely came after it started. Uh, no, I think Whether it started. It, uh, it started at the same time. At the same I think, time, I so think they look came the out to the story of the two of what kept and what doesn't keep, and I think you can also see that there's lots of bits that go in between. But ultimately, you know, on the outside, there wasn't much block-based universe digitally. Yes, block-based yes. universe digitally. Which yes. one's which? <laughs> it's uh, so. I think it's also really interesting. It fascinates me, the Lego story, and, and seeing how that goes in. But we digress, and, but now we're back in Denmark. We're now here very close to present day. Take a quick break, and after the break, we'd love to hear your story and, and go into Memrix and, uh, and why this blends passion for you. So, right after the break. Okay. Uh, welcome back, everybody. And we're in the last part of our episode here with, with Herman from Memorex. I think this is a good good chance to lead into to what, what you're actually doing at Memorex now. So, so I'll just get into what the transition like was from from Lego into Memorex. And, and in the break, you were kind of talking about there, there's actually a direct connection from one to the other. So let's let's unpack that. So after after Lego Universe um, was folded down, there was a little bit of the dark ages with digital at Lego. I think it was um, a little bit frowned upon, but um, no wonder actually. So um, we struggled a little bit um, um, in that in, the, in in those years, and then I got um, the job as digital lead at Lego House, which was fantastic. Lego House, to say, is um, a twelve thousand square meters experience yeah. center in the middle of um, of Billund, and um, it's the it's a dream of Kjell Kristiansen, the the grandson of of the Lego founder, and he imagined a house that should be. Um, more than just playing with Lego bricks. It should have a creativity layer in it, learning through play. So um, the whole underlying um, the whole underlying idea was much, much greater than just promoting the Lego brand or just playing with the Lego bricks. And um, so when, when I started there, there was no real understanding about digital. So they hired digital agencies. Um, and um, so what they proposed was not really interesting. It seems that they didn't didn't really understand Lego. What was and the uh, <laughs> original kind of concept? Are we allowed to share this now that now that we celebrate the two year anniversary of the house mm-hmm. just recently? So just you know, we've gone past that early stages. Maybe it's time to share. So um, uh, first of all, I think uh, those partners were not very agile. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a small disclaimer, right? <laughs> so so. We did that at LEGO Universe, basically. We included kids testing in everything that we did, and uh, this created a really awesome product. And uh, mm-hmm. so th- I'm always a big fan of um, lean startup methodologies, you know, um, iterating. And um, so they were kind of rushing us. They were like saying, okay, these are the designs. This is what we want to do. Everything's ready for production. So just take go and we pre- create the furnitures and stuff. And I'm like, okay, so first of all, the experience hasn't been sought through. The digital layer doesn't feel like it's connected to the physical experience. Mm-hmm. And and so <clears throat> I proposed something differently and that was, um, was accepted. And I think it was like, 
six months after I, I started there, we uh, ran our first test there at Legoland and we had, um, you know, built a couple of items up that we felt would be good in Lego House. So you took from the, the experience now, so you're doing and learning little bits as we go along, do, taking the methodologies into the real experience where you, yeah. you went, we've got Legoland here, we have this space, let's take some of the elements, um, the, uh, the attractions that we want to do and try it here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. With all the kids just in a space. Yeah, exactly. It was easy to recruit. It was summer. <laughs> and so, <laughs> free extra ride. Yeah, exactly. Small queue. <laughs> exactly. And there was, um, so, but the amazing thing is that um, in a Lego way, doing everything perfect, we needed like four months to build like, it, it was, I think we tested the, um, the, um, the car ramps, you know, the vehicle tests on it's called now. Um, and a couple of other things. And so everything had to be perfect. So we prepared like for four months and um, we had even a Lego master builder built like the little, the little, um, um, the city that we wanted to test One there. The master builders had to build it in Lego first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's <laughs> There's something like, you know, Inception and in this, like, you know. <laughs> And then so we had this um, first version of, uh, now it's called City Architect in that house. Um, and um, so, and then we invited the kids in and we thought like we had figured it all out. And, and then kids ruined everything, is that? Uh, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, by, by far not. It was okay. like, it was like, it was like, the worst test I ever saw in my career, Every, everything failed. And the worst part is the kids walked around this um, experience sounds like zombies. They didn't understand anything. They were like scared because they couldn't identify what they should be doing and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, instantly, and so it's, it's, you know, you saw it, it right away. It, it completely failed. So, so city architect currently, you create, you build a little house and you put it onto um, onto a little desk or something, if you if you call it, like this little this little mm -hmm. podium. Um, back then, we had the idea, you know, that you put it onto the city, but we projected something onto the wall. And none of the kids saw it because, you know, when you put something down, you look down and you don't look up. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's those things wow. that we, that we, like, that we I didn't... I got goosebumps from just like the inside. <laughs> right, right there. <laughs> and a couple of other things happened. I mean, I imagine that normally when you have a Lego build from a master builder, the city that should inspire the kids for contributing to that city. Um, so they should walk up there with their building and just place it, place it there. But none of the kids dare to, because, you know, we tell the Lego kids, don't get closer to these Lego master builder things. Mm -hmm. Everything's behind glass. And now we turn it in their head around and ask them to actually contribute to that city that completely failed. And kids were like, am, am I allowed to? You know, mm -hmm. can, I put my, mm -hmm. can I put my building on, on, on there? And then a couple of other catastrophes. I think we asked uh, for, you know, identifying the object that the kids, so little RFID things were in this, in this base plates. Um, and we asked the kids in this, um, to put these prototypes onto some kind of a station where you identify the, um, the, the items that they have built and then they could choose like it's a park and I make a couple of extra so it was kind of a little computer game to identify mm -hmm. to tell the system what the building is none of them did it because it just it just wasn't natural in that flow and you had to tip them onto the shoulder and say hey before you put it here you have to go there so it was completely out of the flow yeah. so it failed completely. And then after four months of planning, after four months of planning, I mean, we had we had 12 experiences still waiting in the pipeline to be tested. The house should have been open in, in, in three mm -hmm. years. And it was the first test and stuff. And mm -hmm. it's like, of course, not everything has to be tested because a couple of Lego experience we know quite well. So it's like yeah, the yeah. free build area and stuff. But um, all the digital parts like that freaked me completely out. And I said, OK, we need to go on a different clock here. And from that moment on, we we contacted every three to four weeks uh, testings and um, we ran 
all in all, until the house opened, we ran 24 tests in 24 months. That was the test cycle. And we had um, more than 3,000 test participants, children and their parents. Was this the first time, in effect, that the the Lego Corporation had done it as iterative testing? You know, of course, there's been other guises, but in this way where you were allowed to keep on not having it perfect, build it, ship it, get it out there, fix it afterwards kind of mentality, this doesn't seem like it was instilled beforehand. Was that just a changing no, no, tide? I, no, no, I, I think it's, it's different. Uh, Lego did a lot of testing, actually, or yeah. it does a lot of testing, actually. The, the products are thoroughly tested, um, especially you know, the new um, innovations coming off yeah, yeah, from okay. the innovation unit. Um, but this was something completely different because Lego never did something like that, never created like experience on that scale yeah, and sorry. you know work yeah. with furniture producers together or something. So there were so many unknowns that it was just logical that you had like an iterative process because mm-hmm. you constantly run into problems and yep. challenges and changes and stuff. And so we detected that early. And um, the exciting part about this is that we had this um, focus group test where we watched children interact with our... Um, Are you like behind the glass glass window? Is it like a meeting room? I'm stereotyping here. I'm watching from my 80s movies. But is it no, behind no, a glass screen and you're like no. with clipboards and, and scientists? I, it, and it, was <laughs> a li- it was a little bit like that. But we, we, we conducted those tests together with our production partners, the digital production partners, so that they can see already in the concept phase what is coming up. Mm. So they were on board... Um, early and this is one of the learnings that I had at that time. Don't make like a phone book of requirements, handed it over to to your supplier. Bring them on board early, show them, let them be active with it. And you get a lot of knowledge. For example, the furniture suppliers were early in our tests and it could bring valuable information in about the sturdiness and how you could produce yeah. things and stuff. On the other hand, they saw what is coming to them like one or two years later, you know, uh, what they have to produce and build for. So we never had the problem of this handover thing because everybody Fabulous. was like involved in that. So but the test, how it went, actually, I, I remember like the first test after these completely bombed and failed tests. So what we did is we went to Bauhaus. Uh, you cried so first, I'm sure. Yeah, we <laughs> cried first a lot, actually. And then we, we came up with this new process, this iterative process. So Bauhaus, just for everyone, is a large DIY store, the home base in the UK, uh, in the States, um, Home Depot yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, so we went to Bauhaus and bought a party tent. We put it up in the middle of the room, hang a projector on top and projected the city now onto the floor because, you know, the interactivity for kids is much better on the floor than on a table, so you get more out of it. We removed all the Lego um, and just... um, just gave them playing cards and saw how can they imagine cities, are the city builders at all and how would they build cities, just getting into the head, really starting from scratch from the baseline. And it was just magical. It was, the kids were all over the place. They were like, they were wow. playing, they were mm-hmm. laughing. They were like, they were total city builders. I mean, I mean, it's like this little girl, I remember her. She said, um, I will have a house over here to look over the river. It was this projected river. And um, I built a factory here because I want to work. My dad should work in that factory. And the shopping center shouldn't be so far <laughs> away here. And all my friends' houses should be away. So they, they had a lot of... A lot of but uh, you couldn't get them to do that? in any way, shape or form in the previous in, iteration in the previous where you had to build things exactly. and, and the way that you imagined it could be. And exactly. And so so it, was, it was absolutely amazing and fantastic findings. And then we introduced, a couple of tests later, we introduced the Lego play in there. Yeah. And then everything broke again because, <laughs> <laughs> because the kids found a spot and said, okay, I will build a house for that spot. So they went away, built the house, came back, and forgot what spot it was that they had. Or some typical boys, they, they came up and they said, okay, so I want to build a shopping center here. Came back to the, okay, shopping centers are blue. 
No, that's not true. Police is up blue, but not shopping centers. Don't tell me that there must be, a, you know, has to be a shopping center or something. I want to build a police station. So all of these creativity and free thinking, you know, we took it, we took it away and just made it very decent now. So this might be a shopping center, but you can build whatever you yeah. like. What do you imagine with blue? So all of these findings were just, were just amazing. And um, we had mass testes, uh, testings after like a year and um, there's this um, legal world. It's like uh, 10,000 or 100,000, I forgot the, the it's, it's a massive, um, it's a massive exhibition with Lego bricks and kids come there together to build with their family um, in Lego. And it's, it's like big pools of Lego where you can swim and stuff. And it's, it's, it's amazing. Perfect <laughs> place. like for Scrooge McDuck kind <laughs> of <laughs> end of when he dives into his money bin. He just swim through Lego. <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly like that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic place. And um, so we had a test area there for like uh, three consecutive years, um, every time in February. And um, I remember the first one was um, 160 square meters and we brought Lego House to life there and recruited wow. the kids. And I think it was like over that weekend, 600 uh, children. And then, and then we could actually find out how is the play in, in, the, in the social environment? Like how, how does it work with families? And you know, do kids actually take other buildings away that you have been there and breaking your heart by doing that? How is the interactivity and the social interactivity? And basically does the digital flow that we have invented, does it work with your wristbands that mm. you check in and stuff? So we had all of these bigger questions to answer there. So this was really, really valuable, but we had also the focus group testings um, beside that. So, a lot of testing and I think this is beside an awesome team I think the Lego house team the designers I think it was amazing the support from the larger company you couldn't wish for uh, anything anything more Certainly. but it was still it was the, and this is important it was still a small organization outside of the main organization that was running by itself defining its own terms so it was a kind of an innovation unit with like mm -hmm. these 30 people running a site but still with the big support so um, yeah. this is something that, that that companies around the world have difficulties to do if you are too far away with your innovation unit you know you don't um, bring any benefits but for the larger corporation in-house outsourced basically innovation unit yes. on a very specific mm. product yes um, almost like a spin out yeah kind which of. I think is also amazing to see um, and, and it's just it's fascinating to hear the story I think we can also do another whole episode on Lego <laughs> because I love it so much but no yes. <laughs> um, but going in from that like you know leaving that space and now coming into Memrix by the sounds of it, it's been like a life of learning and a life of going through the different processes and finding a process that works, not only from the creative side, looking at then from the early parts of animation, what you wanted to do there, but also on the computing side and the, and the development and the programming and coming together with that. And then say, has that shaped what you decided to do after leaving Lego? So Lego was a, definitely a significant part in that decision, but also because I... I basically struggled in school and I never, I, I was never a good pupil and stuff. And, and I mean, coming to university and computer science and studying computer science, I was interested in artificial intelligence and all of these things. And then I entered university. It was boring. It was, it was terrible. You know, they told <laughs> us to do things. I was interested in learning Pascal as a programming language. They told us you have to do modular already then at that language or something. So it was, <laughs> it, it, it really even it, back it, in the day, <laughs> it was dead language. <laughs> So it didn't make sense uh, sense for me. So I spent most of the time in the library, basically, you know, browsing through all these exciting books and stuff. And um, so I always had a little bit um, difficulties in in. I love to learn and I love to you know enrich my thinking and stuff that I that I'd like to try out, but not in 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 an environment like the school system in Austria, or any school system in the world. Denmark mm -hmm. is a lot better in that case, I must say. But um, 
So that was terrible, actually. Uh, being forced to listen to a teacher that produces content into your head is completely meaningless. It goes right in, left out. So that was um, my, my starting point, actually, why I wanted well, to. Well, I, I think that's always really interesting. One of the big things is uh, I've spent probably about 15 years in education, and I'm really interested about it in a kind of alternative education space. But it always gets me of, of if you look at almost every system in the world, it's designed to push people into an industrial revolution society. And that's just not the society we've been in for, let, let's be, I don't know, let's say conservative minimally since the 90s. So, so for more or less the last 20 years, th that has not been the society we've lived in. We've been in this you know, information, internet society. Yes. Yes. And there's just this huge gap of, of, of like, we've been teaching people for, for a world that does not exist anymore. Exactly. And, and I think a lot of students struggle in the way that you struggled of just like, wait, you're teaching us for this world, but, but that's not the world I live in. And so it's not particularly valuable and, and, yes. and whatnot. Yes. And I, I don't know. That's how I've been kind of relating to it. And I've been getting involved with projects that are trying to make this change. Um, yeah. But, but I, I, I still don't really feel like we've cracked that. No, totally the, not. So that's, a, that's one of the biggest challenges we have in our world, especially because um, take the U.S. Um, educational system, for example. Everybody now learns only for the test, to pass the test and the exam. And then you are you immersed in something else, so you forget everything afterwards anyway. But it's so, also, how does that, that particular grade then is the be-all and end-all for that particular moment in time? It's not relational to anything else. Right? So that, that B or that D that you get in math, that then is that particular, and then that forevermore sets you as a failure or a success. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and I finally found for my six-year-old son, who starts like next week um, school in Austria, I found like um, a primary school where you don't get great. Yeah, there are no grades in there. And I think it's fantastic because, mm. I mean, look at the children. They are amazing learners. At the age of five, six, they bang their head, they stand up, you know, at early age. And then, and then you know, they experiment, they try things out and stuff. And then in school, even if we know that you learn best when you are when you are like when you talk to each other or when you have when you have visual person in school we ask the kids to sit still to shut up and to listen to a teacher it's it's everything that is is taken off so we basically educate them out of the natural capacities of that that's why i'm talking about natural learning because mm -hmm. that's what's going to turn off in school and it's can i ask you i'm just curious about the comparison on this and, and you know i'm an american from from the states one of the things that i that i find really crazy about the states is like our schools literally look like prisons. Like there's bars on the windows, there's an outdoor area that has a huge fence with barbed wire on the top. Like they literally look like prisons. And it seems like their primary purpose is just like, we don't trust kids to like wander the streets. So we need to push them somewhere and, and contain them and, and, and whatnot. Is that the same way? I, I, I don't see that as the same way here, but it somewhat seems like the, the, the root is from a similar space of kind of like what you're saying, we want them to stay and, and whatever. And it's, it's more about yeah. control of children than it is about educating children. But I think Denmark in general, Scandinavia is really progressive in that sense. Yeah. So mm -hmm. they are still not there yet, but, um, but I think they started in the 70s to um, basically implement an educational re revolution. And it's more like the methodologies that they are, um, that they are doing really good at. So it's like self-directed self learning, yeah. for example, or you know, not having the teacher at the center of the, of, of the knowledge, but letting kids find it out at their own pace with their own interests. And so, so I think it has a huge effect on, you know, on, on the future of um, education, how Denmark 
Zuckerberg is doing it, for example. And there is another problem, and this is the decline in creativity actually in the US. So um, I think in the last 15 years, there's a dramatic decline in the creative capacities of the children. And this is, is there is a direct a, correlation between the two? It's a direct correlation in how we educate our children, mm -hmm. basically kill their creativity. Yeah. And if you don't have creative potential, where is the innovation coming from? Where is the next, you know, next generation's innovation coming from? So it's not only about the knowledge about the 21st century skills, but it's also about the capacity that you have to have to, 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 to get this knowledge into your head and to do something with it. So that's actually um, one of the things. So after Lego House, um, I, I, um, I, with my company, and, uh, Carsten, who's a co-founder in this company, we actually were both at Lego and we suggested something to do an, an innovation unit to explore a little bit more about learning through play mm -hmm. and creativity and, and basically dip into the creative capacities of one of the most creative companies in, uh, on this planet. And so we suggested um, Lego Ventures, it's now called, and yeah. we, we gave birth to Lego Ventures, which was um, an, amazing, an amazing ride. And um, on that way, we saw, um, we went to Silicon Valley and we saw how many companies are really trying to crack in attack to crack that nut of making, making better educational systems. And there, there are different approaches to it, but it seems like the world's coming together to fix that problem. And it's absolutely amazing to see. And um, and so so we were in Lego Ventures and we were doing um, you know convincing the people about that this unit is necessary, but um, but in the end what we really wanted to do is in you know help Lego to 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 change into a space that seems to be like EdTech that seems to be like um, very. Um, very um, very much needed you know also with a with a lego brand like where parents trust so we could see that but um it's again it's hard to move a company on short notice that is like um so established and very focused on their core business so lego ventures is now a, um, um, a well-established unit i think they're doing a really really good job but for us we wanted to just do things so mm -hmm. um, basically we quit uh, like a year and a half ago and we founded um, our first company and then now our second company in, in December. We did a pivot actually in last December and that's memories. Was that because the, the first company was bust or you had to find a different product or you, you got, you've now got two companies or? Uh, no, we had an idea actually. So there were a couple of partners that um, that we wanted to work with, and uh, those partners had a startup. But we wanted to bring that startup or that uh, that product that they're creating into the educational mm. space. Um, so we're still good friends, stuff. But they have other problems. They have other challenges. They have a startup by themselves. So the pace that we could okay. move in was not coherent with them. And second of it, um, it was a 3D platform basically, and um, we wanted to push it from gaming into the educational space. And they wanted to have this as a second outlet as well. But it was too slow and it was not the right time because they needed to fix first the first startup before. Yeah. So investors immediately ask, okay, how is this correlation? How is it linked to yeah. the future? And it's questions we couldn't answer. So we were accepted in this um, Plus Impact Accelerator by Danske Bank mm -hmm. in, yep. um, in October last year. And they gave us the advice, do a pivot immediately and do it now. Yeah. So um, that was quite exciting. So what- Maybe share with the listeners, how was the experience with working with Plus Impact? And Danske Bank with the corporation, of course, it's zero equity and it's about the learnings and it's about the ecosystem pushing into it. But how was that, would you say? The, the best part was just working with impact, uh, other impact startups. You know, you have the same yeah. mindset, you have the same conversations. It's, it's just like um, there was a company that produces um, really ecological uh, correct shoes, you know, and they, um, I think it's uh, made from uh, plastic from, from the ocean. Um, and so their slogan was walk with impact. Another company was um, uh, producing educational games for Africa to um, teach the kids um, 
certain things. And so it was fantastic to be in that space. Yeah. But the most amazing thing was that we got all the support to do that pivot because it was quite, you know, all these companies had this advantage and we basically have a new company that we, that we, that we formed. So I think it was November, we had the concept ready. Two weeks later, um, we had our first prototype ready. We went to the university here um, in Copenhagen, to Medical University, and asked questions to the students what problems there are. Already two weeks in there, we had... Um, Taking the learnings you had from beforehand and your experiences by the yeah. sounds of it. Yeah. Right from yeah. the beginning and <laughs> exactly. the get-go, even on a new product. Exactly. <laughs> learn your customer and uh, learn to understand your customer, create a prototype. So we had an enormous speed. Uh, actually, every two weeks we were um, at the university and we talked to the students. We showed them some prototypes very early stage prototypes and um, we had our first product ready in March and um, in May we launched the second one with a limited um, groups of users and then um, we started scaling in June and now we are 18 people in, in our office so congratulations so thank said, you but yeah. the, the speed is it's just like that's it's it's like a liberation from a corporate environment where it's really hard to to get that speed well now you were back this is the first time now if I can recall the story from being your own boss to finding work and working for other people, admittedly fantastic organizations along the way, but being your own boss again now and, and having that, I mean, but 18 people in 18 months is a huge push. I mean, it's, did a, it's you in nine months. Actually, it's like. No, uh, sorry. So we got the 80 people now in, I think, three months. So <laughs> <laughs> They actually only started last week. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think what ultimately is that getting that many people coming on board, you're also going to see a culture shift now. It, do, you, do you start seeing that happening already within the organization? This is me detouring a little bit, sorry. Um, no, I, actually, I think it was my co-founder's idea, Carsten, and, and he said, you know, maybe we need some help. We're moving too slow. And I said, okay, we could do that. And there is this um, amazing platform called The Hub. It's also from Danske Bank. It's a, it's a startup. Um, and, um, and they have this outlet for, you know, connecting like startups with, uh, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with students. And we said, okay, we can do that. And we got an enormous response on all the, on all the things. So I think we got 25 applications, certain things, 18 were absolutely amazing um, people. And we brought them on board now. We're paying, we're paying nothing. We cannot pay anything. So we are still bootstrapping. Um, so yep. it's all those students. And, and you know, it's, it's a different way of, I had to talk with, with Carsten the other day. It's a different way of thinking. The people that are working now at this early stage of our company are the ones who are really passionate about wanting yep. to change. It. So you get something yep. completely out of that. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not about payment. Do you feel the passion coming through into what they're doing? Yeah. They don't get, they get their credits for it for being a student and they, they have to work on a project. That's understandable, but this is, they found something that they really, truly love and working on. And do you see that coming out in, in the code and the product itself? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's amazing how fast they get up to speed and how it's like the whole on, onboarding process was like just a walk in the park. I literally talked to the people like for three hours, defining their own way. And, uh, you know, we, we want to build like self-running teams that we are not the managers of overall. So I'm, I'm really believing in, in, in agile leadership. So basically, it's like being a gardener, you know, it's like, you, you, <laughs> you, you, you know, you don't want to, you can't make the plants grow. <laughs> just give them the, the right water and resources and, and stuff. Bits. And then, and then, yeah. So that's, um, and uh, for us, that works. I mean, we don't want to have any material um, middle layer or something. Yeah. So that's, uh, currently it works really, really nice. And the people just are passionate, inspired. We have 
from these 18 people, we have 13 different nations um, on, on board, right? People from um, Pakistan. We have a wonderful girl, a copywriter from Nepal, now working for us. And it's just like this colorful environment, this richness. And I'm a big fan of collective intelligence. It flies directly into the product. And it's just like if you, if you, if you steer it a little bit in a direction where you could see the, uh, the direction of the company and having like a certain product vision or something, and then bring those people on board to give the blood, sweat, and tears for what they see is the future of education it just we're currently generating in my opinion the most awesome product fantastic thanks again for Herman for sharing his story we hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode just as much as we enjoyed recording it as ever if there's anything that you do or do not like about the format let us know in the comments below through a direct message until next time you've been listening to the Love the Problem podcast by Startup 42 Media Thank you.